Cool. Well, my name is Travis. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out that screen behind me. Hopefully, by God's grace, it stays up there. But if you don't own a Bible, this is a great day to go pick one up. As you leave today, we have free Bibles on a table out there. And here at Mission Church, we lead, preach, sing, and meditate upon Scripture. So if you don't have a Bible before you leave today, we want to give you one as our gift to you. Now, this morning, we're going to continue our teaching series through the book of Psalms that we've called Psalms and Exiles Prayer Book. And the reason we've called it this is because the Psalms are not so much a songbook as they are a prayer book, especially for the Israelites as they were traveling throughout the exile. And what we find is that they are our prayer book as we wait the second coming of Jesus. And today, we are going to see that the Psalter, King David, is going to try to fix our eyes on the one we are to worship. Because whether you know it or not, everyone here is a worshiper. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter, or not Acts, what am I doing? Psalm chapter 8, and as you are turning there, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, you are my rock. You are my redeemer. And today I pray that your word just rest on our hearts as you see fit. I have no idea what is going on in the hearts and the lives of the people here, but God, you see the unseen. And so I just pray that right now, Father, that your word will just speak to us the way you want. Some of us need the gift of faith. Some of us need to be shaped and molded and grown. Some of us need to be convicted. However, God, you choose to work on us. We just put ourselves in a posture of humility, asking you to speak. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So everyone here worships. If you don't believe me, what do you do when your favorite sports team wins? Very few of us just quietly golf clap like, yes, I can't believe it. I'm so thankful my team won. You know what I do when my team wins? I scream in my house. I dance in my living room. I end up blasting memes and gifts to all my friends that were cheering for the opposing team. And if you go online and you search, you can actually find a video of me and my brother. Neither one of us liked to hug. But right after my favorite team, the University of Kentucky, beat Ohio State in the NCAA tournament, there is a video of my brother and I jumping up, dancing, neither of us dance, and hugging one another. Now, what would you call that? I call that worship. Several years ago, I went to a concert, not just any particular concert. I went to a Garth Brooks concert. Now, you sit there and you go, you may have your opinions about Garth, but I will tell you this, that man can put on a show. I walked in there, I was in that arena, and as Garth took the stage, the guy in front of me was completely passed out, possibly intoxicated. I remember thinking, this guy spent all this money just to come here to sleep through the show. But as soon as he heard the strum of the song, Friends in Low Places, this man came to life, jumped up, grabbed the hand next to him, and started singing and swaying, singing and swaying. Soon as the song was over, puts his hand down, he's back sleeping again. What do you call that? I call that worship. And if you get a new job and you get a new raise, you just keep that to yourself? Absolutely not. You tell other people. You plan a dinner or maybe you plan a trip. You love to hear the congratulations and the people saying, I'm proud of you. And again, what do we call that, guys? Worship. And if you think you're out from under all of that, if you have a social media account, I can tell you right now, you're a worshiper. Why do you post? What do you post? And when you post, do you not look for the likes and the comments, just trying to see what is going on? What do we call that? We call that worship. You see, everyone worships, and don't miss this. Nobody has to tell you to worship. 
Nobody has to tell you to cheer for your team, to sing at that concert, to talk brag about your job, or even to post on social media. You see, everyone worships, and the only choice you and I get is who or what we worship. Yet if you worship your job, let me ask you, who are you when that job is lost or you get demoted? If you worship your favorite sports team, what do you do when they lose? If you worship that concert, what do you do when that artist retires or the band breaks up? And if you worship what you post on social media, who are you? When instead of getting a like, you get a dislike or you get bad comments or you get canceled. Don't get me wrong, your team winning, fun concerts and new job promotions are oftentimes not necessarily bad things. They could even be good things, God-given things, but you need to hear me clearly, Mission. If those good things become ultimate things, they will become devastating things in our lives. Why is that? You and I were never meant to worship them, for they will not last. In our text, we see that David is worshiping. He is not worshiping himself or something else. He's not worshiping me, myself, and I, but rather he is worshiping God. Yet he does not desire or want to worship God alone. That is why throughout this psalm, what God is going, or David is going to do, he's going to redirect our eyes off the things that we worship that are down here, and he's going to lift our eyes to God to worship God and God alone, because I will tell you this, your heart and my heart are restless until they find their rest in who? In him, because he's the only one who is worthy of our worship. So that's why David writes in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, he says this, for the choir director on the Gittith, now, that word getteth there, we have no idea what it means, okay? There you go. That one's for free. I thought I was to come up with something clever. I've got nothing. We don't know what it means. But he says this, a psalm of David, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. David's use of the word Lord here, probably in your Bible, is all capital letters, you see, what David is doing is he's talking about the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yet David not only uses the word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, he also uses the word Adonai, which means Lord, ruler, or judge. God's covenant name means he will be or the existing one. David is essentially saying that he recognizes that God is other than us. Yet there is not a space or place within this creation or this existence in which God is not a ruler. That is why God's name is magnificent in the heavens, but it's also magnificent throughout the earth. Many of us have heard an expression kind of like this, head to toe. Anybody heard that? Or top to bottom. When somebody says head to toe or top to bottom, what are they talking about? They're talking about everything. And that is what David is saying here. He's essentially saying there's no space or place in the entire existence in which God is not Lord. And yesterday, my family and I made a quick trip to that big hole in the ground that's one of the seventh wonders, seven wonders of the world called the Grand Canyon. I have lived in Las Vegas for 20 years, and I have never made a trip to go see that. I know it's a crime. So yesterday, we went and we finally saw it. And when I walked up to the edge of that canyon, did I feel big? Absolutely not. I felt small. My son kept getting close to the edge, doing push-ups, because he thought it'd be cool to do push-ups at the Grand Canyon. And I'm like, get away from the edge. Why? Because he goes over, it's going to devastate him. And yet, as I was standing there looking at that canyon, guess what came into my mind over and over and over again? Psalm 8. You see, I didn't go up to that canyon and bow down and start worshiping. 
Rather, when I went up to that canyon, it was almost as if that canyon was preaching to me, God made me, God made me, God made me. That is the creation's purpose. And what breaks my heart is how many people will go and visit that canyon or visit Mount Charleston or visit some other aspect of creation and not lift their eyes to the God of heaven and earth. You see, the creation we see and experience, listen to me clearly, it's for our enjoyment, but it is not for our worship. You see, the creation and all, of, all that is around us magnifies and declares the glory of God, not itself. And I can't tell you how many times I've invited people to join us in worship here at church. And they will oftentimes respond to me, no, I'm not going to go there because my worship is up on that mountain. That's where I get my silence, my solitude, and my rest. I've even talked to people before and said, hey, why don't you join us? Worship with the people of God on Sunday. They're like, no, no, I worship God out on those 18, on that 18 green, right? Like, like out on the golf course. And my question is this, what are they truly worshiping? They're not worshiping God. They're worshiping silence, solitude, or golf on God's mountain and God's course. You see, David is not just praising his God. He is praising who? Our God. And I can't help but to think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, in the Lord's Prayer, when he says that you and I are to pray to what? Our Father. The moment you and I trust in Jesus, guess what God becomes? Absolutely, he is your creator, but that moment you trust in his son and what he's done, he becomes your father. And think about how good and glorious and generous our father is. Who here has taste buds? Most of us. And there is a huge difference between those who love Jesus and those who don't know Jesus glorify a medium rare steak or a medium rare sirloin lamb like I did a couple days ago. You see, when somebody doesn't know God, they make glory in the taste of that steak. They make glory in that chef. But when you and I know Jesus and we know our good father, when we taste that glorious piece of meat, medium rare, because there is no other way to cook it, and it hits our lips and it hits our taste buds and they start to applaud like Rev. Robin says, we as followers of Jesus, we praise God. Our Father, how good are you to me to give me taste buds to enjoy the food that I'm eating? He didn't have to do that. God, how good are you to give that chef? Yes, thank that chef. But how good are you to give that chef or to give you know, that person their ability to make this? God, how good are you to give that cow or that lamb? You see, we as followers of Jesus Christ, when we see the creation around us, we don't worship it. We glorify the God who has given it to us for our enjoyment. I mean, how troubling would that be if I gave my kids a gift? And instead of thanking me for that gift and seeing the heart that is reflected in me giving that gift, started worshiping that gift. That would be absolutely wrong, would it not? Yet that is what David is trying to do. He's trying to lift our eyes up off the here and now and lift our eyes up to the God who's been so good and so generous to us. You see, God doesn't just glorify who he is through his creation. He also reveals his work by using weak people to do his will in this world. Listen to what it says. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, 
you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. David focuses here on an aspect of creation. And what is that? He focuses on people. He focuses on you, me, and everyone and everything we see. You see, every person, though sinful, still bears God's image in a broken way. That is why I'm emphatic here at Mission that every single person on this earth is a person of value and worth, not because of what they've done or what they can do, but rather because of who made them. You see, every single person that you pass as you go home today, as you walk past in Walmart or wherever else, is a person of immeasurable value and worth, not because of what they've done, but because of who made them. And where is this truth most important to remember? Costco gas line. Just the other day, I was rolling in on fumes, and no lie, I wish I was making this up. The person behind the pump had no idea what they were doing. Maybe they were brand new Costco members. They put their card up there. They pulled it out, pulled it up. They called over the attendant, put their card in, then they put their payment in, and then they put the gas in. It just took forever. The entire time, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you have to remind yourself. Or how about on the 95? Am I the only one who has been driving back from the 95? Honestly, to have some guy pulling his camper in the fast lane, some semi going slow in this lane, and what do they do? They just run right together. Why do they do that? Because they love to tick off everybody behind them, right? And what do you have to think and remind yourself? Image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. All those people are people of immeasurable value and worth. Why? Because of who made them. Yet David here is not necessarily speaking about adults who frustrate us. Rather, he's speaking about babies, infants, and toddlers. Why is that? Well, he has told us God declares his glory and displays and shows off his glory through everything he's made. But God also displays his power by using that which is weak and helpless to overthrow the powerful. You see, it is when you and I are at our weakest, most helpless state, that is when God is the strongest. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It won't be up on the screen, but just listen to me as I read this. Paul basically had been given a messenger of Satan, a torment, a thorn in his flesh because of his surpassing revelation. He cries out to God three times, God, take this away from me. And three times doesn't mean he just prayed three times, but he prayed constantly. And as he is praying, Jesus speaks to him. And what does Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And what is Paul's response in that? Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness, so that Christ's power may reside in me. You see, the weakest point in our lives, when we praise God in the weakest point of our lives, it's like a fatal blow or a knockout punch to the enemies of God, namely, chiefly, Satan. And right now, we are in a very large room. And strapped to my head, I have a microphone. And to my left and my right, we have what? Speakers. Now, if I did not have this on, you would be able to hear me in this room, but it would be difficult. Yet what this microphone and what this, these speakers do is they amplify that which is weak to make them powerful and to make them heard. And that's what God does in our weakness, that when we are down and out and he comes and he sustains us and he rescues us and we praise him within that, 
His glory is shown off the most. And throughout these chapters, have we seen David in a powerful situation? No. For eight entire chapters, David has been physically and verbally attacked from all sides. And it's in the midst of this weakness we see in Psalm chapter 8, what is he doing? He's praising God. And let me ask you, is the amplification the loudest when David's succeeding or when he's weak? I would argue when he's weak. I will never forget watching a good friend of mine battle cancer. And as cancer was ravaging her body, listening to her praise God, sing worship songs during her treatment, looking for opportunities to share and show Jesus to all those who were caring for her. When I had a family member lose their job because of slander and lies, yes, that family member lamented the situation, but also praised and glorified God who was going to sustain and provide for them. And this past week, I read a story of a man whose wife gave birth to a stillborn child. And he called his sister who did not know Jesus. And as he was on the phone with his sister, he said, oh, sister, that you would trust in Jesus because I could not get through this without his grace. You see, for me, some of the most memorable moments in my life are when athletes on the TV praise God, not when they win the championship, but when they lose it. And some of you have heard of the name of Colt McCoy. Some of you haven't, but good news, I'm going to tell you anyway, okay? You see, Colt McCoy was playing in the NCAA football championship against Alabama. And as he was in that game, he was projected possibly to win that game because of how good he is, but he was also projected to be a number one draft pick in the NFL, making millions of dollars. Yet on the opening drive, as Colt led the Texas Longhorns down the field, he got hit in his throwing arm basically losing all feeling to where he could not grip the ball. He had to watch his final football game from the sideline and watch Alabama beat them. And after the game, guess what the reporters do? Go over and talk to Alabama? No, they want to talk to Colt McCoy because that's the story. And as they go up and they stick the microphone in his face and they say, Colt, how are you feeling? This is what he says. I love this game. I have a passion for this game. I've done everything I can to contribute to my team. Have we made it this far? It's unfortunate I didn't get to play. I'd given anything to be out there with my team. But congratulations to Alabama. I love the way our team fought. And then listen to what he says. But I always give God the glory. I never question why things happen the way they do. God is in control of my life. And I know if nothing else, I'm standing on the rock. That's amplification. That was a shot that was heard around the world. God, I would argue, yes, the championship, he could have said the same thing, but it just doesn't have the same amplification when he's lost it all and he's standing there, doesn't even know if he's going to get a contract in the NFL. And what's he say? My praise will ring. And the question you got to ask yourself is, have you seen God use your weakness to display his glory? You see, David continues by unpacking the smallness of humanity and the goodness of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, when I observe your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after 
him. So David looks at the creation of everything that God has made, and he marvels at the goodness of God. You and I, we have to go outside of Las Vegas to see the stars, right? Because it's so bright here. The other day, we were in Williams, Arizona, and as soon as we walked out of that restaurant, I remember one of my kids saying to my son, look at all the stars because you could see them. Why? Because it was dark outside, and against a very dark backdrop, those stars shine the brightest. And here is David literally looking around at the moon and the stars, probably seeing two to 3,000. If he had some amplifi- like, like some, a telescope, he could probably see tens of thousands. Yet when he looks up, David doesn't feel big, does he? He feels small. You see, David recognizes something that you and I need to embrace, that we are creatures, we're not creators. We are finite, we are not infinite. And yet David is not so much asking a question here. Rather, he is making a statement with his question. When he says, what is man? He's essentially saying, what a God. Why? Because God remembers him even when he feels so small. And when you read about God remembering people in the scripture, it's not like he's just thinking a warm, fuzzy thought about you, you know, about you 20 years ago or whatever. But rather, whenever you read of God remembering somebody, what does God do? He moves closer to them, to care for them and to love them. And you and I, we tend to marvel at anybody of great significance, loving and appreciating and being aware of somebody who is not of great significance. Ron Resser was on the side of the road, stranded. As he took off to go walk to fill up his gas tank, a young man pulled up his car and said, can I help you? With that, Ron got into this young man's car and they went to fill up his gas tank, yet on the way there, they got into a conversation. He found out that this young man played football and that when he basically was done playing football, he wanted to be a pastor. Now, Ron didn't pick up on who he was talking to. He thought he was talking to some college kid. So he looked at him and he said, what string are you? And he said, well, I'm first string. After a few more moments, he began to realize that the man he was talking to was the Las Vegas quarterback, David Carr. And David Carr picked him up, took him to fill up his gas tank, took him back so he could put the gas in his car. And then before he leaves, what does he say? Can I pray for you? We look at that and we marvel. David Carr picking up a stranger. Man, what a great guy. But have you thought about what God has done for you? You see, God displays his care for weak, sinful, small creatures and the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, took the name Son of Man and he was born into a human existence as a baby. Think about this. The scripture says the one who made you, me, and everything we see. The one who made those stars and that moon that David is marveling at stepped into the creation he made, took on flesh, and lived the life you and I were meant to live in perfect obedience to God. And then he voluntarily and willfully died the death you and I were meant to die, not just for us, but instead of us, because of our sin and our rebellion against God. And he rose again so that all those who trust in him, who turn from their sins and place their trust in Jesus, guess what they become? Sons, and daughters of God, and they experience his love. Simple illustration, matters of importance. David Carr, kind of a big deal, right? Sure. Where's God on that scale? Far above. And yet David is going, you remember me. 
you move towards me in love and grace. And if you question whether God remembers you or whether he loves you, it's as if he points to his son and goes, just remember what he's done. Remember who he is. You see, God remembers and cares for us not only when we're small, but he also bestows us with responsibility. Look at verses five through eight. It says, you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. David says here, I feel small and insignificant, yet God, you remember me, but you've also given me dignity. He says, what is man? And how would you answer that question? Somebody comes up to you and says, what is man? What would you say? Some of us are a little bit agnostic in our belief. We don't really know what's out there. We know this wasn't by chance that something made us, but we don't really know what that something is, and we don't really think he cares. Others may perhaps believe what a lot of the people around David's life believed. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, they basically taught that the gods made an accident, human beings. And in order to fix that accident, what they do, they created these human beings that they accidentally created. They made them servants of them. Still others tend to think that mankind is nothing more than trash. Here today, gone tomorrow. And there are many who essentially say, we can't possibly know what the purpose of man is, so therefore man is to create their own person. You do you. You go be what you want to be, right? Well, I want to fly, literally. If I jump off a building, am I going to fly? No. I want to dunk a basketball. Can I do me and go dunk a basketball? No, I can't do that. You see, we live in a world in which we try to figure out man's purpose, and rather than showing the glory of what man was created to be, we end up dehumanizing it. And David is likely here thinking back to the book of Genesis. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in the very first chapter of the Bible, listen to what it says. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. You see, God gave humanity a call and a purpose. You and I don't have to guess or make it up. We are to image God by exercising dominion over everything that he has created, stewarding it, and by his grace, bringing it into conformity to his will as his image bearers and his vice regents. And one of the things that absolutely drives me nuts, and this was especially true in 2020, and I want to qualify it. I want you to hear my heart. I love my dogs. Okay? I love Lucy. I love Phoenix. I love my dogs. Yet people over the years have tried to convince me that my dogs are no less significant than, say, my wife and my kids. And I sit there and look at that, and I go, well, wait a second. They're my dogs. I allow nobody to say they're my fur babies. Whenever my wife says to my dogs when we're picking them up from somewhere we dropped them off, oh, dad's here, I go, I am not their dad. I'm just not. People push their dogs around in strollers and put them in little buggies and all this stuff now, and I just don't understand it. Hear me clearly. I love my dogs. They bring me a lot of joy, but my wife and my children's lives are far more superior than that of that dog. If it comes down to choosing the life between my dogs and my wife and my kids, it's no contest. Do you understand? Do I love my dogs? 
Yes. Do I love my wife and my kids? Absolutely. You see, our culture needs to hear this. Yes, people are of immeasurable value and worth, not because of what they've done or haven't done, but because of who made them, and that is God. And we honor and use the creation according to God's plan and, God's, and for God's glory. We are to use it, to be over it. But friends, we are not to worship it. Yet many of us, including myself, at points in our lives, we didn't just want to be over the creation, we wanted to be over God. All of us in this room, at some point, in some way, have tried to build a kingdom, not to support God's kingdom, but to rival God's kingdom, to overthrow God's kingdom. You and I were joyfully created to be under God and over his creation, yet we have rejected that and tried to be over creation as well as over God. That is why you and I, we can read verse 6, and we just go, really? You see, verse 6 says, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And when you and I go out these doors and we drive home, does it really feel like everything is under the feet of man? Cancer seems to be winning. Disaster seems to be winning. Politicians seem to be winning. And death rules. What can this possibly mean? We don't see this. Well, David is obviously speaking better than himself and better than anyone in his day. You see, the author of Hebrews tells us who this one is. Because the author of Hebrews uses this verse to talk about the him or the man in this text. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. For he, is not sub, he is, has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified. That is funny to me. What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time, and you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. I told you a part of that was funny because that was such a grace to me this week. Think about this. This is a man inspired by the Holy Spirit writing this book. We're reading it now. It's going to be there forever. And what does he say? Somewhere, someone testified. <laughs> you have a hard time memorizing scripture? You're okay. Okay? You're doing okay. What does he say? Somewhere, someone testified. And he quotes David in Psalm 8. And what does he say? Who is Psalm 8 about? David? No. Some other person around David's life? Answer this question. You guys are very quiet this morning. I don't know what to do with you. Okay? Who is Psalm 8 about? Just say it. Jesus. When in doubt, say Jesus and everybody passes. Who's Psalm 8 about? Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one in which all things are subject to. You see, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and everything is under his feet. And at this moment, the man, the, the one, the hymn of Psalm 8, 
Because he has suffered, all those who trust in him, sons and daughters, he will bring into glory. And though you and I do not see Psalm 8 full-blown and completely fulfilled, we know that right now at this moment, Jesus is enjoying it. That everything is under his feet. He is ruling and reigning, using the good and the bad, bringing it to his glorious conclusion. You and I right now do not have an idea of what the future holds, right? If you do, that's kind of weird, okay? But none of us know what the future holds, but many of us in this room, because we're in a relationship with Jesus, know the ones who holds the future. And the one who holds the future, guess what? Jesus, he wins. That is why, like David, in the midst of this moment, in which it feels like everything is falling apart all around us. We are not shaken. We are not troubled. We are not in despair. Why? Because we know the hymn of verse 6. Jesus, he is good. He is Lord. He is ruling and he is reigning. And he is going to bring it to a glorious end. Therefore, I may not know who holds the, or what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. And that, that future is secure and it cannot be shaken. And what Jesus does when he comes into our lives, listen to me clearly, he brings us into so many right relationships. Right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and in a right relationship with the creation around us. No longer worshiping it, finding our ultimate joy in it, but thanking God for the goodness of what it is. And listen to what happens. It leads David to the truth where he started. Verse nine, he says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. David begins his psalm and he ends his psalm with this truth. As you and I walk out of here and you see those mountains to your, you know, your front, to your left, and as you drive around to the Red Rocks, I was talking to a guy at the Grand Canyon that was so amazed at our Red Rocks. And I agree with him. They're beautiful, but they're a terrible God. You go up there and you praise them, they're just not going to do anything. You can go up there and hike on them and say, oh, Red Rocks, I love you, and they're not going to say I love you back. It's a terrible God. You see, everyone worships, and the question is, who or what are you worshiping? Where do you go for joy and hope in the midst of the trials of this life? Your team is going to lose. Your concerts are going to end. Your jobs are going to come to a, a final conclusion. And oftentimes, let me ask you a question. Does social media make us happier no, it oftentimes, it could get you canceled, <laughs> but it oftentimes leads us into despair. I can't tell you a single time I scrolled through my Facebook feed and went, man, I feel good I looked at that. Am I the only one? Get on Instagram and you see them over there on the beach and you're going, why not me, right? But the hero of Psalm 8 cannot be lost, he cannot be canceled. You've heard me talk about this before. You and I can go over to Rome and the Roman Colosseums where they took Christians, put animal skins on them, threw them in there to be eaten alive by animals and be killed by gladiators. Why is that? Because Rome was trying to stop out the, the church. Yet you and I go in there and we can stand right in the place where they killed Christians and look around that Colosseum and guess who's not in power? Rome. But guess is what, what is still alive and active and infiltrating every nook and cranny of this earth? The church. Because you cannot stomp out or cancel Jesus. Amen? 
So worship Jesus, trust in Jesus. And if you don't know him this morning, please do not leave here without knowing who he is. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, for each and every person in this room. God, I know my heart doesn't necessarily long for the Grand Canyon. But I do find a lot of joy in my team's winning. And as small and weird as that may be seen, God, we all in this room find in some way or somehow our hearts prone to wander and to leave the God we love. And so I pray that right now, God, you use Psalm 8 to reorient our eyes off of the things of this world back to the goodness of who you are. Help us to see the goodness of who Jesus is and what he has done. And help us to just trust in you, God, in the midst of the dark night of the soul, that even in that moment, we will praise you because you are the God in the valley and on the mountaintop, in the highs and in the lows, in the despair and the success. You are the one who sustains us. So God, be big. Jesus, be big in this moment. We pray also in your name. Amen. 